cloud security program known as FedRAMP is about to get its first major update in more than a decade. The Office of Management and Budget says the changes will better address the shift toward software as a service that many agencies are making. For some of the major updates OMB is proposing in a draft FedRAMP memo, Federal News Network's Jason Miller spoke to the Deputy Federal Chief Information Officer, Drew Michaelgard. This is tied, of course, to the legislation that came out last January. And in it, you know, a lot of the high-level guidance that we're, we're adding to was laid out there. And one of them is take the Joint Authorization Board and all the great work that they're doing and find a way to scale that. And so set up a larger board with up to seven people from across the federal government that'll do a lot of the, the work of a traditional board. So like set the direction, decide the strategy, what sort of areas to focus on as far as like, what are the needs of, of federal government entities at the current time? What are the security risks that, w- that we are facing and need to address? And overall, like how do you bring in where we're at 300 and some products right now after 10 years, how do we get to thousands or the thousands of products that we see the different agencies wanting to use? So that's, a, of course, a big interest. And that's a challenging problem. Anytime you want to both scale a program from, from how much we're bringing in, how many products that we're looking at, cloud service providers, to also building the trust in agencies. The great work of the JAB was that if you had a JAB authorization you know, you'd go from agency to agency and and there's a high level of trust. And at the other end of the spectrum, we had the agency authorization. So like when I was at Department of Veterans Affairs before, I did a lot of agency authorizations and we haven't seen as high of adoption. So how do we strike a balance between all the great work the agencies are doing as well as the high levels that the the JAB was able to set and then scale that to, to more and more partners? So with the JAB, the seven-member board, uh, imagine it's going to be very similar to the TMF board. You'll have a cross-section of kind of really big agencies, maybe smaller agencies. Imagine it will be rotating. Is, is that kind of the model we're talking about? It is a mixture, much like TMF, in that we, we are looking for a cross-agency representation. A little bit different is that TMF is focused on projects and approving those. This is going to be a mixture of, there, there were three legislatively mandated agencies. So DOD, DHS, and GSA are all going to be on the board and have their representation. And, and those are all three leaders in, in IT anyways. You'd want them on the board. Beyond that, we're looking at, we want to make sure the business lines are presented. A lot of times there's a tension between what a business needs to accomplish its mission and like listening to to those needs versus what are we trying to do on the the security side? What are we trying to do from a from like tech debt and a lot of those things? So we want to make sure those voices are heard. And lastly, we want to hear from at the agency level, like what do our developers and people that are building software like what do they need for tools? So it's it's attacking at the enterprise level, CIOs. It's attacking major business lines, and then also how do our people use the best tools that you would expect in any sort of large corporation. The other big change I've, I've heard about is, is the way you're going to maybe look at tackling FedRAMP authorizations. You mentioned the jab was very popular, but the agency one was not as, as the reciprocity piece was hard. How are you addressing kind of the FedRAMP authorizations going forward? So we're going to continue with the model of joint authorizations because that, that's what people trust. You know, an in, in of one is usually not enough to build that trust. But when you get two or three agencies together working on it, I think the difference will be going forward that and that you'll see agencies more aligned to their, their needs. So if it's if it's health aligned, you could see 
DOD with department, you know, they've got their defense health agency and you've got VA and you've got HHS, like the three of them would make a lot of sense in sponsoring health focused things, treasury and other agencies could do finance. So, so what we're expecting to see is, is more domain experience, but you also have multiple CISOs and multiple CIOs looking at the products that, that their agency needs and then ensuring that, that they're secure and, and accessible for their, for their frontline businesses. So we have the change in the jab. We have obviously the, the, the authorizations piece. What else is, is should folks look out as, as kind of big, big changes that, that are highlighted in this draft memo? One of the other areas that was in the legislation was a FACA setup, and it's called the Federal Secure Cloud Advisory Committee. So it's the FISCAC. And this is a, a public, so we brought together a number of internal leaders from security acquisitions, user experience within the federal government, like DISA, DISA GSA, VA, big and small agencies, as well as industry leaders in security, people that already work with the federal government, but also ones that are that are interested in doing it. So we're getting a lot of perspectives from those meetings. We've had three so far. There's a series of them this month, and I invite everybody that you know that's interested in FedRAMP as a program overall. This is a, a valuable way to contribute to it. You also look at within the memo, like making FedRAMP into a program that'll support this type of change in mission. So we're moving from, you know, like where in the past, like they were highly focused on a couple of, of, of authorizations a year. How do you manage at a scale that's much larger than that? And so we, there were six or eight jab authorizations and a number of agency authorizations as we scale that. How does that program lean in more towards like the process of executing on it? And so you'll see more responsibility there. And also it's taking a measure of risk. So what, what areas do we need to focus on with our current threat environment with the, you know, like we've seen year after year, continual threats to, to systems that we depend on, like how, how do we ensure that this is a strong security program and not just compliance program? How does it work within the larger ecosystem and be the, like that? that seal of approval, that high level of trust and belief in a system. So that's, those are the big areas that we're looking to impact. Is this what you're referring to the, the cloud advisory board, the cloud security advisory board, but there's also, I've heard the technical advisory group, are these the one in the same or the, the technical advisory group is a separate entity? That's going to be separate. The technical advisory group. So we're going to have the FedRAMP board, which you, the JAB board was extremely technical and some of our best and brightest security people in the federal sector. The technical advisory group will sit underneath the FedRAMP board and advise those, the sponsors of different products, like the, be their be their security SMEs. Um, and, and those are gonna be like just a larger version of the, the current group of, of like the JAB. So if you think of that's where your security specialists are and they're advising the, the CIOs that are, that are, and CISOs that are working to provide those authorizations, like all the details they need, as well as with ongoing continuous monitoring. And like the role that that plays is as our, you know, like the, the getting the authorization is important, but the long-term monitoring of security risks is also just as important. What sounds like you're doing is you're bringing in more resources, you're bringing in more people from across government, even, you know, maybe within industry to help with the program to advance it. What is the, you know, when you think about the bigger goal of this FedRAMP memo, this update, 
is it to do what beyond modernize some of the way the FedRAMP is set up, which, as you said, it's been about a decade since the last memo? At the core, it's to react to a changing environment. Like the, the problem set in the beginning was like, how do we get major IaaS infrastructure providers into the federal government operating? Right now, we need to solve the problem of how do we get thousands of SaaS and PaaS providers in? And it, they're totally different companies. Many of them leverage like big IS providers, but we have to look at them in a totally different risk posture. But the pace at which they're being adopted by the agencies is something that we need to react to. And we think between the legislation and a couple of those areas, like this memo will give the detail, like the, the legislation was great. Really, Jason, what we're looking for now is our office takes a very open view to feedback. And we really need your responses. We're and then we're also setting up a public engagement forum with GSA. And the more robust information that we get and feedback, the better that we can make this policy last probably, you know, another five to 10 years, hopefully. And hopefully it's as successful as the first one. Like it was one of the most important memos that I used in, when I was at Department of Veterans Affairs. So, you know, like ideally we get to that high level again. Drew Michaelgard, Deputy Federal Chief Information Officer, speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Check out Jason's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Now. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. 
Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies. And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote. 
which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going, um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. 
And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.